0: Hi, you're listening to the New Space India podcast, a bi weekly talk show that exclusively brings insights from the Indian space activities ecosystem. I'm your host, Narayan, the co founder of India's first space focused think tank, Spaceport Sarabhai. Guests on the New Space India podcast help you understand space activities related macro and micro trends within India in all aspects, including space history, local industry, space science, technology evolution law and policy, art, and more. The New Space India podcast is supported by Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing businesses and people with collaborative virtual environments to enable sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions supports startups, small and medium-scale enterprises, and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellites.
1: Hello friends, uh, my name is Arup das Gupta and I joined ISRO in the year 1970. Uh, as you know, ISRO was formed in 1969, so I am one of those very early recruits. I worked in ISRO all the time, 34 years, and uh, I worked in the same center of ISRO, which is the Space Application Center. Of course, uh, when I joined ISRO, there was no space application center. Uh, it was Electronic Systems Division. And uh, um, the project which I was selected for was the Satellite Instruction Television Experiment, uh, which was just about to take off. The agreement with NASA had been signed sometime in, I think, September 69. So, I was one of the first few recruits for the project. Uh I'm basically a city-bred person and uh, even my parents were born and brought up in small towns Uh, so I had no experience at all of the rural setting and it so happened that I happened to be selected for a project and in fact subsequent projects where all my work was in the rural areas. So, as in the course of my work I have move through every nook and cranny of our country uh, either on on the site experiment work or later on in my work on remote sensing and geographic information systems so uh, there are many stories to tell I guess but uh, maybe a few of them I can just recount and uh, you know the first was of course uh, my travels within rural India. Maybe I should tell you a little story of how I went to a place called Baud Khandmals. Baud Kondmals is uh, located in Odisha. And, uh, and right now it is rather infamous for its uh, Naxalite connection. But in those days, I am talking of 1974, uh, things were not that uh, bad. But then the question was how to reach there. So nobody could tell us how to reach there. So, Professor Chitnis, who was at that time handling the side project, uh, handed me 5,000 rupees and said, Dasgupta, reach whichever way you want. You walk, fly, swim, whatever, but you reach there. Now, 5,000 rupees in those days was quite a lot because our salary was about 700 rupees. So, And there were no credit cards and things like that. So, we I just pocketed the 5,000 rupees and uh, proceeded to... Uh, discuss with my colleagues how to reach there. We are four of us over a team. So we found we go by a train at, and get down at a small town called Jharsaguda and then from there we take a, another train or if you are in a hurry take a taxi and you reach a place called Sambalpur. And then from Sambalpur you reach the one of the ghats on the Mahanadi river and both Khandmals was on the other side of the river. And, and I say Mahanadi river as the name implies is a huge river. It's almost like, you know, if you're standing on one bank, you can barely see the other bank. So, we hired a car and then we went to the ghat and then there was this uh, ferry. We were told that there is a ferry. So, the ferry turned out to be a huge raft actually. And we drove our car onto the raft and then we crossed the river. And then again, we started driving towards this town called Baud. Completely, it was a, uh, you know, Deserted area. We were going through uh, very sparse forests. Finally, we reached the town of Boud, and uh, there, of course, we were met by the local office of the All India Radio, who had been alerted that we were coming, and uh, they were very happy to see us because apparently they felt also very isolated in that small town. So we kind, of, we they took us around the town. You could circumnavigate the town within about uh, half an hour. That was the size of the town. And then we said that look we are going to put up these TV sets and so forth for the rural population and uh, where where are these located so they gave a big laugh and they said there is no rural population here this is a completely tribal area and then you have these small pockets of tribals there is no electricity so you can't run your TV sets over there and uh, so if you are looking for putting TV sets over here you better uh, put it uh, put battery operated sets. So that's was one of my experiences in uh, the depths of rural India, so to speak. Uh, and then the, I remember uh, when, uh, again, I think in 74, um, I had been, because I was working in the uh, rural context, so I was uh, put in charge of uh, something called the deployment operations and maintenance. You know, we had to deploy 2400 uh, direct reception sets In uh, 2400 villages, and these were pretty backward villages chosen specifically so because they wanted to study the impact of a learning medium like television on uh, these kind of populations. And uh, so, uh, the satellite we are going to use was uh, ATS 6, uh, at that time, ATSF. The NASA way of doing things is to call it, uh, give it uh, alpha numbers, and then once you launch it go numeric so it was application technology satellite f which then became ats-6 once it was launched so ats-6 had been launched already and uh, it was uh, stationed over the uh, united states and uh, it was uh, brought it was being used to broadcast uh, health education and uh, technology programs in the us as well as canada now it would be actually for India's use, it would be actually shifted eastward and stationed somewhere over East Africa from where we could see the satellite. Um, from, where, from where the one of the NASA stations uh, located in the UK could also see the satellite because the satellite had to be under their control. So, the problem was that we had the satellite only for a year. So, that meant that uh, the satellite would be given to us somewhere around August 10th and would be taken away by about 15th of august next year so august 10 1975 to august 15 1976 that was the period and uh, naturally if you want to cover 2400 villages in remote areas you have to be uh, able to have everything ready by the time the satellite comes okay now the problem was we have this uh, all this uh, direct reception sets antennas tv sets everything made how do we test it? We test it in the lab. Everything is fine. How to test it with the real satellite? So the idea was that a team of us would go to, to NASA. Uh, we, we, were, we were to go to the Goddard Space Flight Center in near Washington. And we would set up our unit over there, uh, test it out with the live satellite. And uh, once the test results were the, uh, were satisfactory, we could say that the project could I immediately start. So, 74, <clears throat> I think around um, July or August, four of us, uh, two of us in fact, uh, three of us had already gone previously because they were in the earth station business and uh, they had to, uh, they were already located in a place called Rosman, uh, where the main earth station for controlling the satellite was. And we, uh, two of us, we followed with the rest of the equipment, which was two antennas and these antennas were 10 foot diameter dishes, which had been, uh, you know, uh, disassembled and packed in two chests, two huge packing cases, two TV receivers and a few spares and things like that. So with all this, (coughs) this was sent ahead of us and had reached Washington and had been collected by GSFC and kept in a, a warehouse. Uh, we reached there and uh, then uh, we were supposed to, uh, you know, uh, open up the packages. And, and So the packages came very well. There was no damage at all. Both the TV sets were perfectly all right, tested out okay. Uh, antenna had to be assembled. And uh, so there were five of us, two of us and three earlier people. So we all got down to, you uh, know, uh, um, erecting the antenna. And the problem was that it is a, I know, mounted on the ground and uh, it was a tripod, so you had to dig uh, for each antenna you had to dig three holes about two feet deep, push the, tri- transpond, uh, the, the the tripod in and then of course fix it up and then mount the reflector and then point the reflector and all that. So we found that the uh, our uh, NASA hosts were in a bit of a mick. Uh, how do we dig those holes? So, first of course, we had to get permission from the people to dig the holes. That was done. That's not a problem. It was on the side of the building. And I don't remember the building number. But there were a lot of antennas there because, you know, a lot of this kind of work was going on. So, we had to, we were given a place for our two antennas. So, now the problem was how to dig the holes. So, finally, one of us, I remember, who he said, can we get a shovel? So, what kind of, just an ordinary shovel, you know, you used to dig. So they said, Yeah, we, I have one. One of them said, I have one in my car boot. So he brought the shovel and we got down to actually digging those holes. And those guys were very surprised. And then they, from then on, we were known as the Mad Indians. So we dug those holes, put in the tripod, and then we had developed a method of pointing the antenna in a blind fashion. Because obviously, back in India, there was no time to point the antenna after the satellite. So, we had developed this method, so we used the method and pointed the antenna and lo and behold, every other antenna was looking this way, ours was looking this way. So, is our method wrong, we again went through the holes no, there's nothing wrong. Then suddenly, those uh, you know, Jack Miller, he was actually the person who was handling the project from NASA then, he just hit his head and said, Arub, come with me. So, we went back into his cabin and then he did something on the computer. And then he handed me another set of, uh, uh, um, you know, what do you call azimuth and elevation angles for the satellite from that location. And so this time when we used it, we got perfect uh, alignment. Later on, I found out that instead of giving us the azimuth angle and elevation angle of the satellite from that location, he had given us the subsatellite point of the satellite. So naturally, we, we looked in the wrong place. So that was fine and then of course we had to test it with the, satellite, with the satellite and the satellite was pretty busy. Everybody was using it so we got the time at 2 o'clock in the morning. So we went back, we were staying in a small apartment, we went back and then at uh, 1.30 we called up the taxi service and uh, we piled into the taxi, came to NASA and uh, GSFC to the lab and uh, two of the NASA engineers were also there and. Uh, the satellite uh, was. Uh, we were given permission to start receiving satellite uh, signals, and so we, we we just switched on the system, and there was this uh, spectrum analyzer connected to the output, and then pip, you got the you got the signal. So that was one great uh, this thing. For we didn't even have to adjust that. And although we did try, uh, but our, uh, this thing was fantastic, spot on, you know. Uh, But the problem that then we realized was that the signal that was coming was uh, 20 dB below what was expected. And that was not good. So, what could be the problem? So, first uh, they said that maybe we are not transmitting. uh, I mean, they have to transmit. So, they are not transmitting the full power. So, they kept, uh, they pushed up the power. We had a small increase in the blip, but nothing more. So, anyway, it was by that time it was i think three or four in the morning so we said okay well let's we'll think about it later why this is happening and meanwhile my boss from uh, uh, sac this none other than Pramod Kale. so Pramod Kale called me up and said what's happening so i said yeah we have set up the antennas we have set up everything yesterday we tested with the um, rather uh, with the satellite we got the signal but the problem is signal is coming to DDP down. He says, what kind of uh, helix are you using? This was, you know, uh, circularly polarized signal. So I said, this is, uh, we are given to understand, this is, uh, this is uh, right circular polarization. He said, yes, it's right circular polarization from the satellite. So right circular polarization from the satellite will look like a left circular polarization from your end. So we, what is the helix you are using? So, I said, okay, I'll get back and immediately check. So, and looked and it was also a (laughs) right circle polarized thing. So, immediately he called up uh, the antenna manufacturer, this is ECIL, told them to halt all production, that antenna helix has to be changed and Felix said, so with that very first test we could find out a problem and that saved us a huge amount of money because we were going to make something like 3000 antennas. We had made already about 200 but the rest of the 2000 uh, odd you know, the feed was corrected. So that was one experience and then of course we went through a whole lot of testing and everything that was great fun, went through with flying colors. And then after the whole thing was oh, over very relaxed, and I think we were all having a cup of coffee. And Jack Miller calls me to his office. When are you going back? I said, I'm supposed to go back in a couple of days. You're not going back. What is that? So he said, No, you now you write a report. I want to see a report of all the what you have done, all the difficulties you have faced, all the corrections you have done, only then I'll let you go. If required, you, you, you will extend your stay. And I'll talk to Kale and tell him. So, you know, I had to sit back, stay stay back and write the whole report. It was almost a 200-300 page report. But the interesting thing was that that was a fantastic grounding for me because then I realized that any work that you do, unless you complete documentation, it all gets lost. And this is a lesson that I carried with me right through my career. So, this was one of those great things that happened. And uh, then, uh, of course, we came back to India. and. we started on site and then the, again we had a lot of interesting experiences. One of the experiences that we had was, uh, you know, we had to do this kind of village selection. How do, Because, you know, we had to almost go through something like about 10,000 villages before we could select those 2,400 which we would use. So we used to take a lot of parameters, distance from the road, whether it's a motorable road or what is the population size because the uh, the social analysis people wanted population size and male-female ratio, number of children because there used to be a children program also. All this kind of data was being collected. And for us, it was the approachability and then the availability of electric power and the location we are, where we want to put it. We selected the school. In many places, we found a school building was a, you know to, totally decrepit and it had to be repaired and things like that. So, this was going on and I think I was there in Bihar and suddenly the person who was in charge of the Bihar cluster, he was one CL Roy. So, he called me and said, uh, "He suddenly I was sitting there with the people and then he said, sir, uh, please come. So, we all got, got, then he said, no, others no. only you should come. I said, okay, fine. So, we went and then there was this uh, guy there, a village contingent sitting there. They said, why is our village not selected? And this was a tricky situation. <laughs> he said, our village is this and our village is that. No, It was really a very well-developed village. So, And therefore, it was not selected. right? Unfortunately, a neighboring village was selected, which was not so well-developed. So how could you select that undeveloped village and, and, and not us? So our excuse was, you see, it's done by computer selection. So, you know he said, we don't believe in all this computer and all this stuff. You better select our village. <laughs> so I said, okay, we'll see, because it's not in my hand. This work is being done at, back in Amdavad. So I'll go and tell them of this thing, and I noted down the name of the village, etc. Then he said, Okay, fine. But if you don't, we'll go to that village, pick up all your TV and everything, and give it, bring it in our village. <laughs> so you know. I, this is the kind of uh, situation it is there on the ground. You know, so, this was one. Then, you know, another time, you know, this time the uh, the installation work was going on. I had gone to check and you know, all. And then we went to one village, and there is this farmer who was absolutely sitting tight on a small plot of land next to the school building. And uh, the people, uh, my team, was actually putting up an antenna on. On the roof, now this is a gabled roof, so you can't put an antenna on the roof, so it has to be fixed on a pole on the wall and then then, uh, the reflector has to be put, which is not exactly what we would have liked, but we were doing that. So then I said, why are you doing this? Why don't you put it on the ground? So he said, do you see see that man sitting there? I said, yeah, he is the owner of that plot. And for him, if I put the antenna there, he can't use that plot for one year. So he is not going to allow us to put it there. So, you know, these are kind of uh, non technical issues which affect us in technical ways. (laughs) A very interesting episode was relating to the maintenance. Now, the rule was this is a completely modular set. So, the rule was if a problem is reported, you go to the village, you see what's the problem, and pull out the offending module, put in a fresh module, check if the TV is working, and then you come back. With the uh, with the uh, with the non-functional module, and then uh, 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 this had to be sent to the uh, to cluster headquarters, as we called it. So, like you know, uh, in Bihar, Mazafurpur was the cluster headquarters. In Rajasthan, uh, Jaipur was the cluster headquarters, and so forth. So, uh, and uh, in these headquarters, the ECIL, because the TV sets were made by ECIL, so ECIL had stationed a team. And then they would receive the uh, defective units, repair it, and then again put it back into circulation. Suddenly, I got a call from the ECIL chap in Darbhanga, uh, in uh, Muzaffarpur. He said, that there is a huge problem. What's the problem? He says what, whatever I am getting uh, from the Darbhanga town, they have multiple problems. How can, how can a single uh, card have uh, so many problems? So, I said, okay, I'll try and find out. So, <laughs> what I found was very interesting. This chap who was stationed in Darbhanga, he had obviously plenty of time on his hands and he was a bit of an electronics uh, nut. So, what he was doing was, he would he would use his multimeter. In fact, he had none, no other instruments except a multimeter. He would use the multimeter and find out which are the devices which have gone. He would pull them out. He would take the good devices from the spare card, put it there. And then what he would do was, that bad device, he would again put back in the other card. And he would go on doing this till one card would have maybe four or five faulty devices. And then he would send it to the... So, so finally this was solved. So, then we had to tell him that, look, uh, the NIC, I mean, the, uh, the ESL chap told him, you are doing a great job only uh, one request to you is please don't solder the bad units back into the car. <laughs> Just leave them so we know that this is what has to be replaced. So, you know, we had this kind of interesting uh, events also happening. And uh, well, after I, we finished in 75, we finished 75 August, or so site was over. And I was at a loose end uh, what to do. And then Professor Yashpal calls me, he was a director. So he called me and he says, uh, what are you going to do? I said, you, you tell me. I mean, you, uh, I'm right now working on the next project. There's another project called Satellite Telecommunication Experiments Project. And I was going to develop a voice-activated uh, transmission system there. So I said, this is what I'm doing. You, you like it? I says it's okay. He says, no, I want you to do something else. I said, what? Uh, you go into the remote sensing area. No, I fell from the sky. I said, sir, I'm a communication engineer. What do I know of remote sensing? And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, solve high-level science and so forth. So he says, all that is fine. But what we need is a connectivity to the ground. And we need a person who can convey what is being done in remote sensing to the people on the ground so that they appreciate what's happening and you have that experience. Because you've worked in site and in rural areas and so forth. so why don't you take it up? So that's how I got into remote sensing, not into any of the nitty-gritty of remote sensing, but more in terms of acting as a communications channel between the scientists who are working on the various applications and the people who are ultimately would be using those applications. That's how we started and uh, there again i remember one very interesting incident which happened is uh, at that time one of our uh, the, one of the groups in uh, remote sensing was actually working on land use mapping and they were using aerial photographs and they were uh, doing this project they did it in several areas but they were, the nearest one they were doing was in was in a place uh, called uh, godra so uh, we, uh, we were to visit, they were to visit the collector. They asked me, would you like to come, have a look at the things. So, I said, fine, let's go. So, we went to Godhra and uh, there we met with the district collector and uh, then uh, we this team was already explaining to him what has been done and so forth and they were making these nice tables which shows that for every district, you know, how much of area was under what crop and things like that. And this gentleman was saying, yes, 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 uh, but you know, I would like to know where these are. I would like to know where these are. And I, got, and I found the team was not understanding that at all. So, then I intervened and I said, look, I think what he is really looking for is a map. He is not looking for statistics. And then this uh, gentleman uh, he said, yes, 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 Mr. Dasgupta, you are right. I want a map. If you say that there is a particular area under, let's say, groundnut crop, I want to know where is it, the statistics I always get, but where is that, which are the fields which are having this particular crop, that is what I want. So actually with just that one intervention, we shifted the whole activity from statistics to more of mapping and thematic mapping, Uh, I had a lot of interesting things there. Once we had got to Kerala, uh, we wanted to do a project for the Iriki. uh, uh, river, uh, uh, area so we had the forest uh, officer with us the chief uh, chief conservator of forest and we had the the i think the chief soil survey officer too and we were two of us bothassaai and myself, and we went all the way to uh, mm-hmm. up and down you know there's something called the main central road right so we break the main central road and drove all the way from prevandam right up to Idiki and back and um, it was a really wonderful it was supposed to be a field trip so we collected a lot of information but other than that it was really great and uh, we went to Tekadi and you know we could see the elephants and things like that so that was the bonus kind of thing for the work that we did Uh, then of course that uh, went through very nicely and um um what else do we do? Is then when I looked at this whole issue of the mapping, then I realized that uh, you know remote sensing gives us gives us beautiful maps. Fine, people are also very happy with those maps. Fine, but the problem is how do they use those maps, right? So then I found that uh, you know, for example, if you want to interpret those imagery, the first thing that you need is a ground truth. And for ground truth, what these people would do is they would take the imagery, mark the area which they had a doubt and actually go to the field, collect that information and then finalize their thematic uh, details. So I said that, you know, why don't we look at uh, something uh, which is digital? You know, all this work was being analogous. Why don't we look at digital maps and we look at uh, how to, uh, you know, organize all the other data in a digital environment and as well... I started reading up on GIS and so forth, and I had two colleagues with me at that time, so they were also doing a lot of reading, and then I persuaded uh, my uh, boss at that time was Professor P. D. Bhavsar. So I persuaded him, sir, why don't we get a GIS and start working on it on an experimental basis? And Professor Bhavsar was a very kind of encouraging kind of person, he said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And uh, so we started looking out which was the one and then finally uh, one of my colleagues uh, studied the whole thing and said, sir, let's go for Sri ARC and ARC-INFO. How to get uh, ARC-INFO. So now here is where serendipity works. I was going to Calcutta on some work and in those days you didn't have a direct flight. So you had to go to Bombay and stay overnight and then morning you catch a flight to Calcutta. And uh, sitting next to me was a chap whom I had worked with a long time ago and he was actually from IBM. And at that time, IBM had been uh, driven out. This is this is roughly, I'm telling you, around 77 and so forth. So IBM had been pushed out of India. And a lot of the IBM staff uh, had actually formed come together and formed another company They called IDM, International Data Machines. And uh, this guy was... Working with uh, that company, and we had we had been working on buying some desktop computers. So I just met him, and we got chit chatting. And then he said, uh, "Then I said, you." He asked me, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I was kind of looking at these kind of GIS kind of things." Then he said, "That's interesting because we are doing it." So I fell from the sky. I said, "Great." Well, what are you doing? He says, "No, no, we are working in the Santa Cruz uh, Export Promotion Zone, and we are doing a lot of uh, digital digitization work for offshore clients." And we are using Arcane for. So I said, uh, Can we go and have a look at it? He said, I don't know because uh, it's an export oriented zone. So uh, visitors are not allowed, but I'll see what I can do. So let me get back and then I'll get back to you. So fine, we parted. Uh, and then he called me and said, Yes, we can. So, but they should come absolutely clean. And they will go out absolutely clean. You're not even allowed to take out a, take, bring in or take out a piece of paper. So fine with that. I again, two of my colleagues, they went off to Bombay and they had, and they came back with stars in their eyes. They said, so this is what we need. So I said, how to buy it? So again, I called this chap and said, look, uh, are you guys going to market this in India? He said, frankly, I don't think there's a market in India. I said, look, at least you have one customer. So, so why don't you market this? So he said, "Yeah, let me see." So he put in touch, uh, put me in touch with the S3 people in uh, Redlands, California. So we was, uh, we were, we were kind of, you know, uh, I mean, there was no email and things like that at that time. So we use all by letter and telephone. So <clears throat> they sent a person. He came down and he discussed with us, and he said, "Yeah, yes, what work you want to do, you can use Info. Uh, but then, uh, you know, we you have to have a data general machine. I said, we don't use data general, we use WAX. So he said, I'll go back and let you know. So he went back and then he, he wrote back to me saying that, yeah, uh, we can install it in a WAX as well. I said, fine. So how to place the order? And in those days, mind you, there was this uh, Department of Electronics kind of thing. So anything related to computers, software and so forth, you had to canalize it through them. So, we're just going about that when suddenly uh, this chap again telephones me. And he says, Mr. Dasgupta, there is news for you. What is that? We are being taken over by a company called Hindustan Computers. Uh, But they are also taking over the ARC Info business. And they are most likely going to market it. (laughs) Again, this is good news. So, immediately again, uh, because I knew a lot of people in HCL. Because we had bought computers from them and we were working with them on an image processing system as well. So again, I called up my contacts in HCL and said, this is uh, don't we, are you, this is going to happen. So he said, I don't know. I was hearing about it. But then he came back to me and said, yes, this is what happened. But HCL is not buying it. It's, it's being uh, bought over. It's being uh, a partnership is being built up between uh, SRI and, uh, uh, and a sister company of HCL called NIIT. And essentially, that's an educational kind of thing. So I said, I don't care who, I want to buy it. And uh, so then again, this whole thing started. And then finally, we, by that time, of course, the rest of people in Israel also were very keen. They said, We want to, we want it. So I said, Okay, let's, let's then buy in bulk, right? So we bought, I think, some like 10, 15 licenses. Um, I think three, three or four licenses in SAC, another three, four in NRSA. And then we had these regional remote sensing service centers, so five of them. So each of them, again, we gave three, four, so five, six, seven, seven, almost twenty, twenty-five licenses. We, have. and that's how we got into GIS. And then, of course, <clears throat> we started uh, putting together a lot of uh, stuff on the on the GIS. And then that is the time somewhere around 1983. Um, this whole uh, idea of uh, National Natural Resources Management System got mooted. Professor Dhawan and uh, Professor MGK Menon, at that time he was Secretary DST. So they mooted this idea, let's let's get together and do something. Like this. And I was rooting for something called a Natural Resources Information System, NRIS, and uh, DST was doing an NRDMS, Natural Resources Data Management System. Of course, they were going totally indigenous. So they were starting with the development of the GIS itself. Uh, CSRE in Bombay, one uh, uh, lady's, I forget her name, uh, she was uh, pushing that. Uh, so they went that route, we went the ARK-INFO route. And uh, we started off a pilot project. Uh, we got together the stuff and we, it was made. And then of course <clears throat> the whole idea was to then put all all, across, all over India. But then somehow or other it got uh, stopped. I don't know why, what happened, some thinking in headquarters maybe. So <clears throat> I felt very dejected and I said, okay, this is it. So on my file, I wrote NRIS, RIP and put it in my bottom drawer, but then suddenly again it got revived uh, because one of the person who was working with me, he had by then tra- he had been transferred to headquarters. So he again started pushing this and then, so the whole thing got revived. And then we went in for a large project, uh, almost all India project, we covered each and every state. We involved the state remote sensing centers and uh, that's how the NRS project got done. And today, uh, much of the work that we did is now uh, available on a uh, system called Vedas, okay? uh, which was basically started with the base data we had created in NRS and of course, they have now added a lot of stuff. to it. So you won't recognize the NRS as such, such, but NRS was the starting point, so to speak. And then, of course, so we got involved in the um, one of the things that I would like to talk about, and uh, Sudarshan also talked about. It was the impact of sanctions, right? So when we started the NRS project, at that time we were uh, basically we were in the workstation mode, so we were using Silicon Graphics, and uh, uh, S three software, of course, and uh, the, the sanctions it has In fact, uh, this was for the pilot, right? And after the pilot, we decided to go for the um, uh, for the PC based stuff because S three also had then by then shifted from the workstations and minis to PCs. In fact, I had gone to uh their user conference in uh two thousand i think or nineteen ninety nine because they gave us an award for uh innovative use of uh g i s they're arguing for g i s for uh, for information system for development purposes and i was supposed to go and collect the award so there i met uh, a lot of the people uh, i knew and uh, there was one person there um, He's written a book also. Anyway, I, so uh, he, uh, I since I knew him from before, so I started chatting with him and he said, and he said, you attend my lecture. I said, fine. So that lecture, he showed that the entire, they were shifting over to Windows NT. So, that was news to me. So, afterwards I went and I was goggle-eyed and I went and told him, what is this? So, he said, that's why I told you to attend my lecture. We are leaving uh, work, workstations, we are leaving mainframes, we are leaving minis, we are going to work on Windows NT. So, I came back and then that is the time when we are discussing about the uh, NRIS being uh, you know, uh, scaled up to an all India level. And uh, so I said, look, uh, we just have to change the entire track because now it's all PCs. In a sense, that was very good because, you know, workstations were pretty expensive. And all the difficulties that I was facing was how are we going to buy so many workstations? So once it became a PC-based thing, it was, of course, those PCs were pretty heavy PCs. So they were not all that cheap. But nevertheless, it was an order of magnitude uh, cheaper. So my budget could be much better and then of course we could buy huge amount of licenses so we could negotiate with the sd to bring down the cost i mean, it was brought down in figures which i was told please don't tell these figures to anybody you know that kind of stuff it was very they really came down uh, and this is when the sanctions hit and uh, sd said we can't sell we can't sell to you so what to do so then uh, a media was found that uh, we would place an order, but on behalf of the end users and SD would deliver to the end users. But we would act as kind of you know, validators and things like that. So using that, we were able to finally get the systems and get the project going. But there was another sad story. We were working on Silicon Graphics. And by that time, uh, of course, once we went into NRIS at that time, uh, because I, I was also at that time heading the image processing group so a lot of heavy uh, processing work was there and again there was a demand for a lot of uh, workstations powerful workstations and again we selected silicon graphics suddenly I get a call from a silicon graphics man in India and he says Mr. Das Gupta uh, please hear me out so I said what's happened he said that uh, there has been a a, a, a problem with the uh, US, and uh, they are suspecting the, all the uh, workstations you have purchased are <coughs> uh, being used for um, uh, military purposes. I said, "This is, I fell from skies." I said, "Look, I mean we are you know that you know we are uh, civilians, and we working on uh, our Indian remote sensing satellites are not used by the, the military." And we are only doing the data processing part of it. So he said, uh, no, but I'll explain to you. So he came over and then he said uh, what had happened. See, this was a very silly thing to happen. See, whenever we had to order any of these things, we had to actually uh, give a justification. Now, our friends in Trivandrum, they also wanted the same workstation. So their purchase department got in touch with our purchase department. How did you get this? Because it was refused to them. And our purchase, that chap, he just took a copy of my justification and he passed it on to them. At least he could have told them that, you know, don't just blind copy. This guy, what he did was he blind copied it and attached it. Now, this guy in uh, the US, he rang a bell, ISRO, same workstation, from two centers. And he brings the two together, and he sees the justification is the same. So, Rishabhananda was in trouble. We were in trouble. So this finally uh, they said, "I will bring, we'll bring that person. You explain to him." So the guy came, and you know, he was very, very dodgy. You know, he was feeling very this thing. So I said, "Yeah, what is it that you want to know? You know I want to see your machine. I said, "I'm sorry." I can't allow you to enter my laboratory unless I know why. Because our rule is if it's a foreigner and a foreigner has to be taken to the laboratory, I have to get prior permission. So you can't enter my lab. But tell me what is the problem. He said you are using it for uh, military purposes. I said no. And you have to take my word for it. We are a civilian organization. We We are using, we used your system. For uh, NRS kind of work, I showed him some of the stuff that we had done, and then right now we are using it for data processing for our IRS satellites. So there is no military use there; it's a civilian satellite. It was very difficult to convince him, and uh, uh, this Indian, he was absolutely shivering. Then uh, he took me aside and said, "Sir, you please do something and let him have a look at it; otherwise, my job is at stake." I said, "Okay." So, then I called up my director. I said, so this is what has happened and what do you want me to do? So, he said that, okay, you have him accompanied by some somebody all the time and uh, he should not take anything. No notes, no recording, nothing. So, I said, okay, fine. With these conditions, I said, okay, you come. I'll take you. But you will go only to that machine. You will see what is there. It'll be shown to you by the people concerned and you're going to c- come back and I'll be with you every step of the way. So he did that. He satisfied himself that there was nothing there. But it meant nothing because we were under uh, uh, sanctions uh, that never got lifted. And one of the things that came out of that was very interesting. We were also at that time uh, going to be working on the data processing system for the uh, radar uh, SAR satellites, and we were in agreement. We were in agreement with DFLR, DLR, DLR now, uh, for the use of the ERS data. So, NRC was actually developing the system for reception of the ERS data, and we were to develop the data processing part, and uh, we needed a high high-performance computer but again high-performance computers were not allowed we came to know from uh, com- from cdac who was in pune that they were uh were working on a high-performance computer ba- one Matkar was there at that time so we talked on the phone and he said yeah we have we can we can work together i said fine so they were using something called a transputer uh, a transputer is basically a computer processor with four communication ports. So you could link them in any way into a mesh stuck ladder, whatever. And you know, you could then do parallel processing. So we worked on that and uh, we were able to develop a parallel processor for the SAR data, the ERS1 SAR data. In fact, <laughs> CDAC got an award for that <laughs> because that was considered to be the most innovative use of the transport system, PARAM they used to call it. And then we had to buy one param from them, and uh, that was located in NRC for the ERS data processing. So, in a sense, what happened was that the sanctions also helped us to do find a lot of other ways of getting the same job done. And in the end, I don't think the sanctions helped the US very much. In fact, they actually harmed them. Because if you remember, there was another famous uh, uh, high performance computing uh, computer company. I've forgotten the name now. They had a computer in uh, the National Center for Medium Wave Weather Forecasting in Delhi, Noida, and I believe there was a chap sitting there at the gate, yes, from the India, from the U.S. Embassy, and he would check every, each and every piece of paper that was going in or coming out to ensure that there was no uh, other work being done except for the uh, meteorological uh, uh, modeling. And uh, this company then went belly up because what happened was they had. Set apart quite a few computers for sale to countries like India where there was under sanctions. But they could never make the sales because by that time India had moved far ahead onto high performance computing. So these are some of the memories that I had. Have uh, we did a lot of work with a lot of other agencies, uh, DST, for example. We were participants in the National Spatial Data Infrastructure. But somehow or other uh, that uh, never really took off the way it should have uh, is still rolling along. Uh, And now I think uh, with the new geospatial policy that has come, things are going to be very different. We always faced a lot of problems with the new geospatial policy, uh, with the old geospatial policy. Restrictions on aerial photography, restrictions on satellite data. You know, you could uh, even our 5-meter data was under uh, you know we couldn't share with anybody and uh, so i believe that now these things are going to change after many 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 years well change i guess maybe in my lifetime i hope okay so that's all i have to say
0: Thank you for listening in to this episode of the New Space India podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share this episode with anyone you believe will enjoy listening to it. You'll be able to find the New Space India podcast in any of the podcasting platforms that you may be using, including Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, and others. Do subscribe to the podcast in case you want to receive new episodes automatically. I'm grateful if you're able to leave a rating for the podcast, which will help others discover it. Thank you for listening in again and the next episode will be out in the next two weeks as usual.